Amen. Well, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Exodus 32, we'll continue in that passage this Lord's Day. Uh, if you were with us last week, you know that that is the, the passage where as Moses is on the mountaintop receiving instruction from God, there is uh, trouble in the camp below. Uh, God tells Moses that while he's been there for 40 days and 40 nights on the mountaintop, in that holy place with God, receiving instruction for how the people are to, to worship, uh, while that's been taking place, uh, God's people have turned to idolatry. And so they've gone to Aaron and they've demanded from Aaron uh, that he give them a God to worship. And so Aaron asked them to go and get some of the gold that God had provided for them for the Exodus. They melted that down. They create this golden calf. Uh, that was a, an image that had been worshipped during their time in Egypt. And so where we are now in this chapter, uh, God has threatened to kill the people. Moses has interceded for the people. He's prayed to the Lord to relent. The Lord does. And now Moses is going to go down into the camp and he's going to see firsthand what has taken place. And so I pray that we will learn from this text today that's been given for our instruction. So we're going to look at Exodus 32. Uh, verses 15 through 35, and out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to stand, if you would, as I read God's Word for us on this cold Lord's Day. And this is what we read. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat or the sound of singing that I hear. <coughs> Excuse me. And as soon as he came near the camp, he saw the calves and the dancing. And Moses' anger burned hot. And he drew the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people. They are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire. And out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses says, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother. 
so that he might bestow a blessing upon this day, upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, the people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people, because they had made the calf the one that Aaron made. If you would, pray with me. Father, as we come to this text, we ask in Jesus' name that you might open up our eyes to see. That, that you might open up our, our minds to understand and comprehend. That you might open up our hearts to believe in the truth of your word. As we see the devastating consequences of sin among the Israelites, Lord, would you help us to see the sin in our own lives? Would you help us to repent of that sin and trust in Christ? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I appreciate everyone who braved the, the weather to be here. I appreciate our, our deacons and others from our church that helped yesterday to clear our parking lots and our sidewalks. Uh, whenever we have snowy Sundays like this, I'm always reminded of the conversion of Charles Spurgeon. I've shared about his conversion before. Spurgeon himself shared about his own conversion when he preached about 280 times. I'm quite sure I haven't shared it that many times, and so if you'll uh, labor with me once again to hear it. But, but days like this remind me of that day. It was about 168 years ago. It was, uh, it was during this time, during January. And Spurgeon was about 15 years old. Now Spurgeon, if you don't know much about him, he had grown up in a Christian home. His father and his grandfather were both pastors. He was uh, devout in seeking to understand and apply God's Word. When his family would gather for family prayer, he would be the one that would read the Bible. He was not known to be a rebellious child or rebellious youth. But he had yet to repent and place his faith in Christ. And this troubled his own soul. He understood the depths of his sin, but he yet was to respond. Well, on this January morning, 168 years ago, uh, he was on his way to church. He was walking in a snowstorm. And so as he was walking up a hill, the snowstorm became so intense, he had to turn and go down a side street, and there he found a primitive Methodist chapel. He walked into that primitive Methodist chapel. He found that the preacher hadn't even made it there that day because of the snowstorm. And so a layman, a shoemaker, got up and began to preach to the few that were present, including Spurgeon, from Isaiah 45, verse 22. He got up and read these words, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. God would use that shoemaker, and He would use that word to bring a 15-year-old Charles Spurgeon to faith in Christ. And he would later write this about his conversion, about that shoemaker. He, he had not much to say, thank God, for that compelled him to keep on repeating his text, and there was nothing needed by me at any rate except his text. 
Then stopping, he pointed to where I was sitting under the gallery and said, that young man there looks very miserable. And he shouted, as I think only a primitive Methodist can, look, look, young man, look now. Then I had this vision. And not a vision to my eyes, but to my heart. I saw what a Savior Christ was. Now, I can never tell you how it was, but no sooner saw whom I was to believe in that I understood what it was to believe. And I did believe in one moment. And as the snow fell on my road home from that little house of prayer, I thought every snowflake talked with me and told me of the pardon I had found. For I was white as the driven snow through the grace of God. That testimony is a wonderful reminder to us of God's grace. And this 15-year-old Spurgeon embraced it because he had been raised to understand the gospel. He had been raised to understand the depths of his own sin. In fact, he carried two books with him at all times. He had a Bible and he had Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And those things he said later, that they sort of haunted him when he would go to sleep at night because he realized the depths of his sin. And as I've already mentioned, and if you know much about Spurgeon, you know, again, he, he wasn't a rebellious child. In fact, I read one account where as a young boy, he, he approached uh, a man who had been a recent convert in his grandfather's church. He found this man to be spending time with people of doubtful character. <laughs> I guess there was a Bart Smart in his neighborhood. And so he went there. That'll sink in in a moment. Uh, he went there, and he, as a boy, confronted this man. He confronted who he was spending time with, and this man went to the church and repented. Spurgeon was certainly not one who was running around behind his parents' back, running around being a rebellious teen, but he was someone who understood the depths of his own sin. Friends, in order for us to understand the good news of the gospel, we need to first understand the bad news of our sin. And we live in a culture and in a context where more and more you don't hear preachers talk about sin. You don't hear things taught from the pulpit about God's wrath and about hell. And as a result of that, the gospel is sold very, very short. In order to understand what good news the gospel is. We need to understand how desperate our condition is. And that's what God did in the life of a 15-year-old Spurgeon. And my prayer is that's what He'll do in our life as we continue to walk through Exodus 32 together. Again, we come to a text where we see the desperate state of sin. And we come to a text where Paul later writes in 1 Corinthians, we are to learn from this text. And you may recall last week we talked about this, how Paul writes to the Corinthians, now these things, speaking of Exodus 32, they happened as an example, but they were written for our instruction. So we're not only to learn from the example, we're to be instructed by it. So what are we to learn? Well, first, and I place this in your notes, we need to see sin like God sees sin. A lesson from Exodus 32 is that we need to see sin as God sees sin. And notice as we are introduced to this section of the passage, we have Moses coming down the mountain. You may remember as Moses went up the mountain, Joshua went with him. And then as they got to a certain point, Joshua st stopped in camp, and then Moses went on up into the holiness of God's presence. 
And so now Moses is coming down the mountain and he's reunited with Joshua. Now Joshua doesn't know what's been taking place down in the camp. He doesn't know what's been taking place up on the mountain. So as they're walking down, he doesn't have all the information that Moses has. So as he hears the people who we know at this point are dancing and singing, he thinks, well, well, maybe this is some type of singing of victory from a battle. Maybe this is a cry of defeat. And maybe the people are singing to the Lord. And after all, Joshua had heard that song before. And you remember earlier in our study of Exodus and Exodus 15, God rescues His people. He brings those plagues upon the Egyptians. He brings them through the Red Sea. And then He swallows up their enemies in the sea. And then the people respond by doing what? That they sing. That they worship. They cry out to God for their deliverance. They thank God for what He's done. And so as Joshua's coming down the mountain, perhaps he's thinking back to what took place 40 days before and how God had given the Ten Commandments to the people. And perhaps he's thinking, well, well notice, look, look, the people, they're still singing and rejoicing. But that's not the case at all. And Moses knows this. And as they get closer, they see what's taking place. That they've taken the gold rings from their ears. They brought them to Aaron. He's molded them into a golden calf. That would have been a, an image of idol worship from, a, from their time in Egypt. And now the people are not only worshiping this false idol. They, they are praising it. They are singing to it. Notice how Moses responds. First thing we see there in the text in verse 19 is Moses takes the tablets that the Lord had written. These were the Ten Commandments. God had Himself engraved on these tablets the Ten Commandments. And Moses takes them, and immediately the text tells us He shatters them against the ground. Now, you may read this and think, well, well obviously Moses is frustrated. Uh, Moses is angry. Uh, Moses has just been on the mountain time pleading with the Lord not to allow his wrath to just take out the people. And now Moses encounters their sin. And in his anger and his frustration, he just throws these tablets down. And we thank that because that's kind of how we respond, isn't it? You get upset about something. You get frustrated about something. And you just get so mad, you just throw something down. But that's far from what's happening here. Notice what it is Moses is throwing down. He is taking the tablets of the law. He is taking the commandments. And what has happened with those commandments? God's people have broken them. The first command, they're to have one God. They've broken that. They're worshiping an image of a golden cow. God's second command, they're to make no idols, no graven images. They have broken that commandment by making this image, this graven image. The third command, they're not to take the Lord's name in vain. And yet, what have they done? They've said on one hand, God's delivered us. And at the same time, they've said, let us worship this golden cow. That's who's delivered us. And so what Moses does is rather symbolic here. He takes the commandments and he smashes them to the ground that the people might understand, this is what you have done in your sin. You have broken the law of a holy God. But that's not all he does. Notice what he does with the idol. The text goes on to tell us that he took the calf, verse 20, they made and he burned it with fire. He ground it to powder. He scattered it in water. And then this might seem rather peculiar to many of us today. He made the people of Israel drink it. 
Now, why do all that? Well, there are a number of opinions we, we don't know for sure. Some say this points towards a, a rather obscure passage in Numbers 5 where something similar to this takes place as a test to see if a wife has been unfaithful to her husband. And some point to that text and say, well, Israel has been unfaithful to God, and so that's what God is doing here. Others say that probably what's taking place is just that God is showing the people that their idols are dust. That they can be ground down to the dust. But, but, but why drink it? Well, I tend to lead towards another theory and one that might seem a bit gross this morning, but I think what God is telling His people is, is your idols, your gods, they're human waste. I'm, I'm going to pass them through your body that you might see what it is you're worshiping. Well, whatever the case here, what God instructs Moses to do is to utterly and completely obliterate these idols. And there's something there for us to learn. One commentator said it this way, all too often Christians try to deal with their idolatries by putting them in the closet rather than taking them out with the trash. We pretend that we've cleaned house, spiritually speaking, but in fact sin is still lurking in the cupboard, ready to come out the next time we are tempted to open the door. The lustful man goes back to look at his pornography. The gossip starts telling rumors again. The greedy man cheats a little on another deal. The unhappy woman goes on another binge of food or alcohol or shopping. Moses never gave the Israelites a chance to go back to the golden calf. In the same way, we need to, st- we need to keep grinding our idols down until they turn to dust. Don't keep dabbling with idols. Destroy them. That's the lesson for us from Exodus 32. Moses is showing the people, we're not going to stick this to the side. We're not going to keep this as something of remembrance to say, don't turn back to the idols. We need to completely obliterate it. Because if not in our sin, we will go right back to it. Why did Moses respond this way? Go back to verse 19. When Moses encounters the people, it says, That his anger burned hot. That phrase may sound familiar to some of you. If you look just a few verses above that, you see that God's anger towards the people is the exact same wording. In verse 10, God tells Moses, Leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. So this same phrase God uses towards their sin is the same phrase Moses uses towards their sin, which helps us to see something. Moses here sees the people's sin as God sees their sin. Friends, one of the greatest problems in the church of Jesus Christ today is that we do not see sin like God sees sin. We rationalize our sin. We marginalize our sin. We get defensive about our sin. We try to explain away our sin. But what we radically need in the church of Christ is to see our sin like God sees our sin. As vile. As an assault on His holiness. For what it is. And we see Moses here responding to sin that way, but how we so often respond is how Aaron responds here. Notice there in verse 21. Moses goes to Aaron and says, well, what did this people 
do to you that you brought such a great sin upon them? Uh, Moses is holding Aaron accountable here. Moses is confronting Aaron. Aaron was in charge. And so Moses sees what's taking place. It's like, well, what in the world happened to you that you let this happen among the people? And notice how Aaron responds. The very first thing he says there in verse 22 is, Moses, you need to chill out. That's our common vernacular. He says, Moses, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. In other words, Moses, you, you need to just calm down here. Moses, this isn't that big a deal. Moses, what are you getting so angry about? And then notice what else he does. He, he turns the blame. You, you know the people that they're set on evil. So what's Aaron saying here? Listen, Moses, you need to calm down. And Moses, listen, this isn't my fault. It's their fault. Now, I'm not responsible here. And in saying this, Aaron echoes the words that were first introduced to all the way back in the garden. You remember what happens when God encounters Adam and confronts him on his sin? Well, God, it's her fault. God, God she, she's the one who started this. God, why are you pointing the finger at me? And by the way, God, you gave her to me, so kind of, God, this is your fault. We would never do that, would we? Blame someone else for our sin? Well, they started it. <laughs> to which I always will hear my father's voice. But I'm going to end it. Well, we have this, this mindset when we're confronted with sin immediately to do what? I mean, just consider this for a moment. Consider the last time someone talked to you about something you did wrong. Was your immediate response to say, oh, thank you for confronting me. Thank you for pointing that out. Let's get a little personal here. Married couples, the last time your spouse came to you and confronted you on something, was your immediate response, oh, thank you, wife, thank you, husband, for pointing that out about me. I woke up this morning praying, God, I thank you so much for this person in my life. I pray if I do anything wrong that they'll call me out on it. Now, how do you normally respond? Well, if you want to get into this, I'll tell you a few things you did. Well, you don't understand. Well, you do this. Well, you started it. Well, we get into the blame game, and rather than accepting responsibility for our sin, we just go after somebody else. Why? It's the same reason Aaron does this. this. Because our inclination is to not take responsibility. And so notice as it continues here, Aaron says, listen, calm down, Moses. This is the people's fault. And then look at verse 23. Well, they said, make us gods who shall go before us. And they didn't know where you were, Moses. So, so I, I took this gold and I threw it into the fire and poof, out came the calf. And before you begin to think about how ridiculous that is, you just think about how some of you've explained your sin sometimes. Yeah. How quick we are, right? You know, I don't know how this happened. And how quick we are to, to not take responsibility. Here, Aaron is not only not taking responsibility, he, he just comes up with this ridiculous excuse to say, I had nothing to do with this. I was just minding my own business. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I, I threw the gold into the fire. I didn't know it. Oh, wow, a cow comes out, and all of a sudden they're just all worshiping it. But what he doesn't do is take responsibility for his sin. What he doesn't do is see his sin like God sees his sin. 
and see the people sin like God sees their sin. Friend, how do you respond to sin today? How do you respond to sin in your life when you're confronted? How do you respond to your sin when God's Word confronts you each Lord's Day? How do you respond when someone else calls you out in sin? Well, who are you to judge me? (laughs) Oh, you you think I've got a problem. Well, have you looked at so-and-so? Well, look at those people over there. You know how they're just intent on sin. Well, I don't know how this happened. Just happened. So often we respond like Aaron. Rather than responding like Moses. And seeing that we truly, that we truly deserve the very wrath of God for our sin. See, many times when we're confronted in our sin, we may have sorrow, but that sorrow often is not genuine. I've seen time after time in my own life and in the lives of others more of a sorry I got caught than a sorry for my sin. And and why is that? Well, I believe we see that as we come to this next point. How we deal with sin, point two, reveals whose side we are on. See, there's a heart issue here, and we see it come out in the people. So so Moses confronts Aaron, and Moses makes it clear, okay, Aaron, you're not going to take responsibility for your sin, but this is your fault. (laughs) And later, as Moses would write these words down under the inspiration of the Spirit, notice how he slides this in here, verse 25. And Moses saw the people had broken loose. By the way, for Aaron had let them break loose. Verse 35, Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. And so Moses is making it explicitly clear, Aaron, you're not going to own your sin, but your sin is going to be known. This is on you. And this is on the people. And so Moses issues this challenge and this call. There in verse 26 we read, Moses stood at the gate of the camp. Now if you will picture this for a moment, you've got on one side, you've got uh, of this gate, you've got the camp, you've got millions of Israelites encamp there. And on the other side, you've got this mountain of God. We know in the text, as we've studied this passage, that that God essentially made a boundary at the foothill of the mountain. He told the people they could not cross that. So it's likely that's around the place where the gate is to remind the people, don't go further than this. And then Moses and a few others were allowed to go partially up the mountain. Moses went all the way up the mountain. And so Moses is standing before the people in between these sinful people and a holy God. Again, this is this picture of Moses as the mediator. And notice what he says to the people. He looks to them and he issues this challenge. Verse 26. Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And so in essence, Moses here is drawing a line in the sand. He's saying, this is the Lord's side. This is not the Lord's side. If you're on the Lord's side, then you come stand with me. And out of the millions that are there, one tribe stands with him. The text tells us that the Levites were the ones, the tribe of Levi, who came and stood with Moses. And so then... Moses tells the Levites this instruction from the Lord. 
He says to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel. So this is not what's on the mind of Moses. This is not what's on the mind of the Levites. They didn't come up with this plan. That this is given to them as a directive by God. And God says in response to the sin of the people, that they're to take their swords, and they're to go throughout the camp, and they're to kill people because of their sin. And it doesn't matter if it's your brother it doesn't matter if it's your son. It doesn't matter if it's your best friend. God says they are to take their lives. And the sons of Levi obey God. But notice what it says. In that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. Now, now I don't want to marginalize that. 3,000 is a lot of people. But by the most conservative estimates, there's at least a million and a half Israelites at this point. That there may be up to 3 million Israelites at this point. And the picture we have when God's on the mountain is what? He tells Moses, all the people have done this. I'm going to wipe all the people out. I'm going to just make a holy nation through you. So that means there were a lot more than 3,000 people who sinned against God. So why did God only take 3,000 of them out? Well, I think again here we see the grace and we see the mercy of God. I think right up to the last minute, God is giving His people an opportunity to repent. He's giving them an opportunity as the Levites walk into the camp with swords on their side and swords in their hand up to that very moment, He's giving them an opportunity to repent. And I think chances are, these 3,000 whose lives were taken were the 3,000 who just utterly refused to repent before a holy God. Now that might sound harsh to you. But friends, do you realize that's the future for every one of us who refuses to repent? Do you understand that God has been merciful to you and I today? That the sword has not dropped on us? That if you have yet to place your faith in Christ and repent and trust in Christ, God in His mercy has allowed you another day and another opportunity. But there will come a day where the sword will fall. There will come a day of accountability. Friends, there will come a day of judgment. And I don't say that joyfully, and I don't say that lightly. Because there are people that I love, and there are people that I care for, who've yet to repent and trust in Christ. And if Christ was to return today to the glory of the Father, they would spend eternity in a real hell. And that truth should drive us to our knees and drive us to the Gospel. And what we see here is God being merciful. He has given His people yet another opportunity to repent. Just as He has given you today and so many in our world today. But there will be a day when the time will be up. There will be a day when there's no other chances. There'll be a day when all these folks who walk through life thinking, well, well, one day I'll get serious about the Lord. One day I'll get serious about this. Or, or maybe have this vision somehow that right before they die, they're going to come to their senses and trust in Christ. Friends, the Scripture says to us, today is the day of salvation. And we see God's grace and His mercy that only 3,000 lose their lives. And I think likely those 3,000 were the ones who just refused to repent. How we respond to our sin 
whether we will repent or not, says ultimately whose side we are on. See, there are so many in our world today who, who consider themselves to be on the Lord's side and yet they live a life of unrepentance. That there are so many that you encounter and I encounter. If you're to ask them, hey, uh, are you a Christian? What's a Christian? Someone who bears the name of Christ. Someone who's on the side of Christ. Are you a Christian? Oh yeah, well I'm a Christian. Where do you go to church? Well, I don't, you know, I don't go to church anywhere. I love Jesus. It's just his people I have a problem with. A bunch of hypocrites. We are, by the way. There's always room for another one. But, but we have all these notions. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. Okay. You know, I've gotten to the point now where I don't even ask them about, do you go to church? I just ask them this. Tell me about repentance in your life. That'll turn a conversation pretty quick, by the way. Tell you about what? Well, you said you're a Christian, you belong to Christ. I'm a Christian, I belong to Christ. And so I'm called to a life of faith and repentance. And God exposes to me through His Word, through His church, through His people, through His Holy Spirit, every day things I need to turn from and repent from. Tell me, friend, who bears the name of Christ, tell me about this repentance in your life since you're on the Lord's side. So many times we consider ourselves to be on the Lord's side, but we're not. When we put on the Christian label, thinking somehow that's going to be enough to save us. But here's what we miss so often that I think God's Word reveals to us in this text. Why was God so serious in dealing with this sin? If you're a student of the Scriptures, if you've been with us as we've studied through Genesis and Exodus and some of these Old Testament texts, you've seen some pretty vile things that God's people have done. There's been texts that I've come to, I've thought, Lord, how in the world can I preach this? How can I read this out loud in front of my own children? And when I've considered those things, Exodus 32 hadn't been a big concern. (laughs) This is bad, but I can think of what I might consider worse. So why does God respond this way? Now here's what we need to understand. See, every sin that you and I commit is an offense against God. But the way that you and I often think about sin is it being an offense against others. And so we spend our lives going through life thinking about sin and its effects horizontally. So I I did something wrong, I need to make it right with this person. All, All my words had this consequence and we spend all our time trying to fix things horizontally and we need to, but friends, ultimately every sin we commit primarily is an offense against a holy God. And we spend so little time considering that God is the one our sin has offended. And we spend it thinking about how it's offended others. That's why you hear so often people say, well, as long as you're not hurting anyone else, it's okay. But what does the Scripture say? What does the Scripture say about sin? You remember David's sin with Bathsheba? Most of us are aware of this account. You have David, who's the king at this point. He he should be off in battle. At a time when kings go to battle, he's not. He looks lustfully on a woman in his city, Bathsheba. She's the wife of another man. That doesn't matter to him in his sin. He wants what he wants, and he goes for it, and he ends up entering into this adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. But then, as a result of that adulterous relationship, Bathsheba is now with child. 
And so David, rather than admitting his sin, does what so often we do. He seeks to cover his sin, so he comes up with his plan. Well, I'll bring her husband home from battle. He'll reunite with his wife. Everybody will assume this is his child. Everything will go on just fine. But Uriah is a man of integrity. He's a noble man. He thinks, I can't go in there and sleep in a bed with my wife while all my men are out there fighting in battle. He'll sleep in the doorway. He won't even go into the presence of his wife. So David has to come up with another plan. And this time, David's plan is that he will send a message to his leaders in the military, and he'll tell them as the men go into the battle, put Uriah in the front, then pull back that they might be killed. And so who did David sin against? Well, I'd say Uriah. <laughs> I'd say the men who were killed in battle with Uriah. I'd say he sinned against Bathsheba. I'd say he sinned against the entire nation. He was to lead them in God's ways. And so the day comes when David confesses his sin. Psalm 51, where David is, con he is convicted of his sin by Nathan and he, he understands what he did wrong. Notice what he says. When David finally comes to understand his sin, he writes this, Psalm 51, verse 4. Speaking of God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you might be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I would imagine Uriah on the other side of eternity would have a few words about that. <laughs> well, uh, David, you sinned against me too. But, but why does David say this? Is it because he's not taking responsibility? No, it's because he understands something about his sin that so often we don't. That primarily his sin is an offense against a holy God. And for that offense, he deserves the wrath of that God. It's not enough that we see sin like God sees it. We need to deal with that sin through repentance. And if we refuse to, as much as we might think we're on the Lord's side, friend, we are not. And that's a dangerous place to be. But I'll close with this. We, we again see God's grace and mercy. Point three here. This text reminds us we need a great mediator to atone for our great sin. And so Moses goes and confronts Aaron. He confronts the people. And notice what happens here in confronting them. Verse 30, the next day Moses said to the people, You've sinned a great sin. A grave sin, some translations say. That would emphasize how great the sin is. That term only occurs five times in the entire Old Testament, and three of them are in this chapter. Moses calls the people into account because of their sin. Again, why is it so great? Because it's a sin against God. And the wages of sin is death. And Moses understands this. He's been with God already. He knows that the people are deserving of the wrath of God. But notice what Moses does. He said, you've sinned a great sin. Now I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So 3,000 have died, but sin still needs to be dealt with. Millions still bear the guilt of their sin. Moses says, okay, I'm going to go before God and perhaps I can atone. And that's what Moses does. Moses goes back to the Lord. He says to the Lord, the people have sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin. And so again, Moses is the mediator. He's the one that intercedes. He goes to God and says, God, will you forgive them? Then notice what he says. 
But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. What is Moses saying there? Moses is going before the Lord. The Lord has already told Moses, Moses, you, you, you didn't do anything wrong here. He said, I'll wipe out all the people, but I'll build a righteous nation through you, Moses. Now, Moses wasn't perfect. Moses had done wrong things in the past. But, but Moses wasn't involved in the sin that took place here in Exodus 32. And so Moses goes before God and says, God, please forgive them. But, but if you won't forgive them, take me instead. Let me pay the price of their sin. And God says no. And he explains to Moses that whoever has sinned, that they're responsible for their own sin. And he explains to Moses that, that there is a consequence coming for their sin. And then the scripture tells us he sends a great plague among them. So, so what are we to learn from this? Well, friends, I hope you see how this points us directly to Jesus Christ. Moses stands before a holy God and says, let me die in their place. And God says no, because the plan of God is what? That He will send another. One who is perfect. Not one who is a murderer and fled the consequence of his sin. Not one who is a doubter and said God send someone else. Someone who was Perfect, but not just perfect man. Someone who was fully God. Someone who could die not just for the sins of one, but for the sins of many, for the sins of the world. See, this passage points us directly to Jesus. When we study about Moses, we learn about Jesus. That's how the Bible works. It's a picture of the gospel, and I hope that you're seeing here the story of salvation. It gets clearer and clearer because it exposes our despair, our desperate need, and God's grace and His mercy and His provision. Friends, one has gone before God and has made this request, and God has said yes, and that's Jesus Christ our Lord. And the Scripture says that while all of us have sinned and while the wages of sin is death, that God demonstrates His love toward us and that while we are yet sinners, while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. And if we'll confess Him as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we'll be saved. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends, have you called on His name? I'm not asking if you just flippantly consider yourself on the Lord's side. Have you repented? Have you cried out to Him? 168 years ago this week, a 15-year-old boy heard a passage preached from Isaiah. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there's no one else. Friends, there's no one else who can save you. There's no one else worthy of placing your trust in. So will you place your trust in the Lord today? If you would stand together as I pray for us and for our time of invitation and response. Father, as we come to your word, we see yet again a picture of the gospel. But Lord, it's so easy for us to miss that picture. It's so easy for us in a, in a culture that is very comfortable with our sin. It's easy for us just to put our, our idols in the cabinet for another day 
It's easy for us to give the impression that we've cleaned house. Perhaps there's some here this morning, Lord, who, who've gone into this year thinking, well, I, I'm going to go to church and I'm going to make a change. Perhaps there's some who made that decision long ago and they've been in this church every Sunday as long as they can remember. Lord, nobody's going to be saved because they walked into these doors today. Because they sit on these pews today. The only thing that's going to save us from the wrath that we rightly deserve is if we cry out to Jesus as Lord. So Father, I pray that you would do that work in our hearts today. And for those who have made that confession, made that cry, perhaps they've come to see today that, that they're dealing more with sin like Aaron than like Moses. They're making excuses for it. They're marginalizing it. They're defensive about it. Lord, will you humble us that we might confess that we are indeed sinners, that you might cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.